Um, this session is uh, Women in God's Mission. My name is Rebecca Naylor. Um, I have served as a missionary doctor in India, in South India, uh, for most of my professional career, and then uh, joined the staff of my mission board, the International Mission Board, uh, leading the uh, Global Health Strategies Network uh, for the IMB. So, um, uh, do we need to say anything about evaluations? I think she's passing them out. Um, so, before you leave uh, the session, if you would uh, complete that and uh, give it to our very able volunteer who's going to be in the room with us. So, women in God's mission. In the next few minutes, we're going to just ask some questions and hopefully answer some questions and uh, have time for Q&A. We'll talk in general about women in missions. I will tell something of my story and uh, then have uh, Q&A. So, some questions. Do women have a unique role in mission service? What are some of the challenges that women face in missions? And how can I prepare? Um, So, when we think about uh, historically and uh, sort of traditionally, what are the roles that women have in missions? Women have traditionally been leaders in praying for missions. They motivate churches to pray. They pray. They also, um, we also, by nature, are nurturing in our uh, disposition. And indeed, women have had that role. They have led in mobilizing support, in mobilizing giving uh, for missions through the churches. Then, of course, they're involved in domestic missions. Especially that has been like inner city Um, missions, urban uh, missions, social ministries, and evangelism. Then, of course, women have definitely been involved in international missions. And what kind of roles have they had internationally? Sometimes pioneering. They may be the actual pioneers in a place. They have been engaged in church planting, uh, obviously working with women and Children, um, evangelism, social work, you know, especially I've heard of some single missionaries that were so just really overwhelmed with so many abandoned, orphaned children that they ended up, you know, adopting uh, some of them. Um, women have unusual and unique access to women, and we'll talk about that more in just a moment. Certainly women have had a role in education, they've had a role in health care, and uh, linguistics and translation. Um, another one that uh, I have added to this slide is missionary writing. You know, women have uh, often been the ones who record the histories and write those missionary biographies and the missionary stories. And um, that is a, a very important role that women have had in missions. Um, in what ways do we have unique opportunities? Well, ability to reach women. Women can reach women in a way that no others can, especially when you think of the healthcare arena, uh, especially in Muslim and even Hindu cultures. Um, it is women who must care for the women. 
Uh, it would not be allowed otherwise. We have access to homes that uh, I think is a unique opportunity that we have. Um, we may be able to remain longer in a hostile situation. And that, you may think, well, that seems kind of odd. But it is true. You know, maybe maybe the, the people fighting think we have less threat. And so they kind of leave the women alone. Uh, whereas the men are threatening and have to have to leave. Uh, in a book I read by Tucker, Guardians of the Great Commission, this is the quote, Missionary service is one of the few vocations in which women have been more prominent in adverse situations than men. J. Herbert Kane, a missiologist, said this, The more difficult and dangerous the work, the higher the ratio of women to men. So and that may be a unique role you have that you hadn't thought of before. Um, this is from a missionary uh, in 1881 in thinking of, of, the, of the uniqueness of women in missions. My honest opinion is that many of the ladies I have known have been superior to many of our male workers in all that goes to constituting the true missionary. Their intense earnestness, their love to the people, their zeal, their untiring energy, and their long-suffering patience have been far greater than in the men. Well, all that having been said about these unique opportunities that we have, they're challenges. And so we might as well address those and think about what are the challenges that face us. Certainly, um, in, and actually as I sort of prepared for this and thought about um, the things I would like to present, I interviewed eight missionary women who were actively engaged. Um, their range of age was from fairly young folks to women in their 60s. And I also looked at this book by Ruth Tucker, Guardians of the Great Commission. Well, first of all, in family and ministry, balance may be very hard to achieve. The woman may be a leader. She has, a, she may be a healthcare professional, a ministry, mother, wife, um, maybe school teacher. Uh, the lost people who are around her. And somehow she's got to balance all of those things, and that is certainly a challenge. Uh, the husband's position, if she is married, may be dominant. And uh, sometimes that can create some, some tension for a woman or be a bit of a, a challenge that she has to deal with. Uh, she may be homeschooling her children. Remember, this is for a season. It doesn't last forever. Uh, and seasons of life come like that. Um, separation from children. Uh, certainly the father has uh, grief and, and pain when the child leaves, but I think the mother especially does. The child may be sent off to boarding school in high school, but certainly will leave to go to college and will be back on the other side of the world away from her, and that separation can be very, very uh, difficult and is a challenge. 
And then there's that thing of expectations. Um, what you expect to be able to do or free to do may not be what you will do. And what others expect of you may not match what you expect to do. And so all of that can be a, a real challenge. I think it's very important if you're married that this be a team ministry with your husband. You may do different things, but the strategy and object of your ministry would be the same. Well, we have to talk about the single missionary. Well, you know, why even talk about a single missionary? We don't talk about the married missionary. And so, you know, I've been single the whole time. And I always kind of wondered why I got labeled. But we are. So that's all right. There is a differentiation made very often, both with fellow missionaries as well as with the culture to which uh, you have gone. Sometimes it can be a little bit condescending. And um, another little challenge that can happen is that things get dumped on you. Uh, oh, she has so much free time. Uh, she doesn't have the three kids and the you know all this, and so she must have time to do this. Uh, and that that certainly can happen. Uh, I, I read a book entitled "By Ones and by Twos" uh, by a lady named Lockerbie, and she said she was single. She said that when people ask her, are you married, she would reply, no, my husband died at birth. And um, that usually took care of the conversation, you know. Um, So maybe being labeled as an unclaimed treasure, uh, sort of patronizing. And, And then there's the issue that others may not know quite what to do with you socially, even your fellow missionaries. Um, and certainly in the culture. But let me assure you, this is not peculiar to the mission field. This is true in America. And, and so that that is just a fact of being single and life as a single, I think. Loneliness, that's another challenge. But let me assure you, this is common to both married and single. You can be very lonely in the middle of a lot of people. Uh, loneliness is isolation, a, a feeling that you maybe don't belong. And, and that, that creates loneliness. Everyone experiences it sometimes. It's only when it becomes like all the time, like obsessive, that this is really a big problem. I think loneliness especially can happen if you live in an isolated place. Maybe you're the only family. Uh, maybe your husband travels some with the work. Uh, you're stuck at home. You've got the homeschooling and the children, and he's gone, and there's no other woman that you can relate to, and you're sort of isolated. Well, you can pretty quickly fall into the dumps. Um, loneliness can be a problem. Uh, the single missionary that we labeled um, Maybe there's nobody there from your own culture. And, and so you have trouble creating those relationships in which you can, you know, really have, have togetherness. Well, we, we need to address the challenge of sex discrimination. It is a reality, too. Um, so, first of all, you look at 
self-advocacy versus self-denial. Women are most commonly in the mission setting, in the majority, but they may not be speaking out or they may not be recognized to speak out. Uh, And when women missionaries demand equality, it is not self-advocacy. That's feminism. And, and a woman demanding equality in the mission community, that's not the same. Um, it, you know, I think uh, it's really a form of self-denial. These women are totally committed to service and to their call from God to serve. And, and they have denied self in doing that. Um, and so demanding equality, the others on your team have also responded to God's call. Um, submission and, and assertion. You say, well, that's kind of two opposite things. Well, they go together. Uh, it's a little hard to explain. Certainly submission is there as you've submitted to God's will and direction in your life. We submit to authority. We, we submit to the structures of the organization for which we work. Um, that's just life. You do that. Uh, but at the same time, um, it doesn't mean you can't speak up. And it doesn't mean that you don't influence. You do speak. You do influence. Uh, and, and you do assert yourself in that sense. And so the two go together. They're not contradictory. But they are, uh, they go together. Uh, another challenge, you, you are doing a job like the men, an equal job, and yet you don't have the voice at the table. Uh, you, you can't, you're not deter- making the decisions. And that can be a, a real challenge. Um, you know, you, you think in, in strategy planning, in, in board meetings, and things like this. Maybe you don't think you have voice. Um, we must remember that in mission history, women have made, even if they weren't the by position leader, they have had tremendous influence. Uh, organizations like Missionary Aviation Fellowship, founded by a woman. Gospel Recordings, founded by a woman. The LAMP method of Learning language, language acquisition made practical, uh, the concept of a woman. So, you know, we have influence, and, and really all these things, um, they, they all fit together. Well, I want to tell you just a little bit about a, a lady named Lottie Moon, because she's a, kind of an example of some of these things. Uh, she was born in 1840. Um, and so she grew up in the 40s and 50s in Virginia. She was saved when she was an older teenager. And soon thereafter, God called her into missions and to go to China. She was educated as a teacher. Uh, she was a Baptist. Our mission board would not appoint single missionaries. And then the Civil War came. And so the Civil War happened, and she was teaching school, but could not get away from that call. And ultimately, in 1873, the mission board appointed her and sent her with a couple. So she didn't go alone. Okay. 
she was to teach. She was to start a girls' school. She did that. But she was very burdened about the villages that had no witness at all. And it was thought, well, she can't go live out there by herself. But she did for a long time in very isolated place. Well, she was not supposed to talk to men. Well, how can these men, these heathen men who are going to hell without Jesus, how can I not tell them about Jesus? So, of course, she did tell them about Jesus. And uh, she was not to preach, but she raised up men who did preach. And churches were begun, and, and it multiplied. Um, and so there you see just briefly some examples of, of submission. And yet there came that point of assertion. Um, she, she spoke up, um, certainly self-denial, but still speaking uh, and expressing herself. Well, so we know their challenges. How are we going to meet them? And not only get over them, but actually make progress and progress upward. So, meeting the challenges. You need to be very, very certain of God's call. No matter, even if there are other challenges outside the fact of of your being a woman, um, the only thing that keeps you serving on the mission field is God's call. There are going to come difficulties, discouragement, loneliness. Uh, So many things come. And you need to regularly review God's call. Not the need itself. Needs will be there. But that's not what called you. It's God who calls you. Um, Yes, there are sick people. Yes, there are needs. Yes, we are to meet needs. But it's God who calls. Submit everything to God and just trust Him. As you, as you think of meeting challenges and, and these, um, it's very important that you just, um, give everything over to the Lord and, and depend entirely on Him. As He directs, you obey. Remember, obedience can't be part way. You either obey or you don't obey. It, it's one or the other. And it's a very clear a distinction. Uh, this one we almost laugh about, especially we missionaries that have been on the field a while. You know, we kind of laugh and say, yeah, just simply adjust. Well, you do simply adjust. You must be flexible. It's not going to be like you thought. Life isn't going to be like you thought, whether you're here or there or wherever you are. And so you need to have flexibility and adjust your expectations. Um, you know, we talked earlier about, you know, what, what you expected, what others expected of you. And it may not be like that at all. And so you need to adjust your expectations. There may be difficulties interpersonally between missionaries. Um, most of us with experience would, would say that, yes, we, we saw that happen. Um, and we didn't think it would happen, but it happened. Well, adjust your expectations, and how can you all work together as a team with a common objective of advancing God's kingdom?
develop relationships. You know, this takes intention. You have to do it intentionally. Um, especially look for relationships with other women. Uh, and I think this is true for married and single both. Married, it may be a little bit easier. Often your children are your connectors. Uh, other children and mothers. And then you, you know, you get together. Um, hospitality. Open your home. Um, if you're having trouble or if you're limited in going out, just invite people to you. And in your home, you're pretty free to say whatever you want to say. That's your chance to share your faith. Um, so hospitality. Um, if you're single, well, capitalize on it. You've got more freedom in your schedule than a family does. Uh, you can respond to disasters and emergency needs. Um, and one lady I interviewed, she said that the, the national people around her, the local people, felt sorry for her because she was single. And so they, in, so many invited her to their homes that she, her social calendar was just packed. Uh, she had more invitations than she could even meet. Um, so, you know, capitalize on it. Um, if you're married, have a true partnership with your husband. Each of you is called, but you're also called as a couple. And it doesn't mean that you're doing the same things. It doesn't mean you're always side by side. But it does mean that it's what you're doing is complementary and that you each are building up the other. Uh, and, and that's what uh, should happen. I talked a moment ago about Lottie Moon. Well, she said this. Uh, she broke up an engagement, and uh, this was her comment after that on marriage. God had first claim on my life, and since the two conflicted, there could be no question about the result. The call was primary. And he, he said, no, I'm not going overseas. And so she broke it off. Well, um, you know, most single people have not chosen that necessarily as the ideal. But still, God is more than adequate and you will have complete fulfillment. Dr. Clara Swain was the first woman physician missionary to serve overseas. And she went to India in 1870. Uh, she was treating thousands of patients every year, and she had been there about 15 years when the Muslim prince of that area uh, of India uh, knew of her reputation, and he invited her to be the doctor for all the women in his palace. And so she gained access to this incredible uh, top-level community. Um, Just a great story, a rare opportunity to share the gospel. Um, This is one of my heroes, Dr. Ida Scudder. Uh, Ida grew up in India as the daughter of uh, missionary doctor parents. And uh, when she went away to college, uh, she had visions of finding a very fine husband and uh, who would be comfortably uh, uh, off so far as money. 
and they would have a very nice house, and she was going to be very comfortable. And this is how it was going to be. So she went back to India to see her parents during one of her vacations during college. And in one night, uh, there came three times a knock on the front door. The first time was a man who said to her father, uh, My wife is in labor. She's in trouble. I need a doctor. And when he found out the doctor was the father, her, her dad, he said, No, a, doctor, uh, a man cannot care for my wife. Three times that happened, three different men. And the next day there were three funerals in the village. And this is how God called Ida. So she, God gave her the vision of a medical school for women in India that would train women to be doctors to take care of women. And so she came back to America. She went to medical school. And in 1901, she established the Christian Medical College Hospital and subsequently the college for women. And uh, today, that institution is one of the leading medical institutions in all of uh, Asia. Uh, And, you know, so Dr. Ida was quite a remarkable lady. She continued to serve in India until her death uh, in 1960. Well, let me tell you a bit of my story, and then we'll have time for some Q&A. I served in the country of India down in the south, in the city of Bangalore, where that circle is. Um, My place of service was the Bangalore Baptist Hospital. I grew up in the home of a Baptist pastor, and I came to know Jesus as my Savior when I was five years old. Um, I was in junior high school when I thought about medicine. And... uh, God put that there because I knew nothing. I didn't have a clue how you even, I didn't know anything. I was, uh, soon after that, we had missionaries visiting in our church. And as I listened to them, God spoke to me clearly, uh, personally, about medical missions. I was pretty horrified. I thought it was impossible. Uh, I didn't want to. Um, I was too insignificant, and that, in my mind, was so big. Uh, I didn't want to leave home, so I kept very quiet. And I said nothing to anybody, including my parents. And for about 18 months, it was constantly nagging. Just I, I don't know how to describe it. It was just there. You know, a a sermon I would hear. My own dad was my pastor. Uh, And uh, our song, the words of a song, or it it could be, it just kept coming. And after 18 months, I finally said, God, okay, I will do this if you want me to do it. Immediately, all that, uh, whatever, was gone. There was peace. I was goal-directed. And I was going to move on toward doing this that God had asked me to do. Um, Eventually, after uh, late in medical school, God showed me that surgery was the direction he wanted me to go. Uh, This was the 1960s. 
uh, you did not, uh, as a woman, go into surgery. And I was told that this would be very problematic and probably not possible. But um, I felt sure that this was what I should do, and indeed did do. Went to Dallas, uh, to the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School and Parkland Hospital, and um, did my five years of surgical residency. Um, I was the first woman they had taken. They did not take another one during my tenure. And they did not take another one for another five years. Uh, I, I evidently didn't, maybe I didn't make such a good impression after all. Um, but I survived. And uh, as you can see there from the uh, residency picture, I was pretty well alone. And so it was that uh, I applied to our International Mission Board and uh, was appointed to serve in the Bangalore Baptist Hospital, which was just uh, at the time of my appointment was still being built. Um, so I arrived in India at the beginning of 1974, and it's very important as a missionary, as you go to a new place, you must learn the language, and you need to learn the culture. Uh, you, you need to become a part of the community. Uh, this is essential if you are going to be effective. Um, so the hospital itself was opened in 1973. It had been open a few months when I arrived. We are about to celebrate its 50th birthday uh, in just two months. And I've been a part of the institution the whole 50 years. So this is going to be a very exciting big occasion. Um, by 1989, uh, the management of the hospital was handed over to that Christian medical college that Dr. Ida had founded years and years before. Uh, in the 90s, we began multiple educational programs, and all through the, the, the whole 50 years, the hospital has just kept growing and expanding. So what was my role there? Uh, I was a doctor, so obviously I saw patients, and I was a surgeon, so obviously I did that as well. I was not a gynecologist, but I did very much of that. Um, and any missionary will tell you, any kind, not just health care, but anyone, you will end up doing things you didn't anticipate doing that you maybe didn't train to do or want to do. Uh, anyway, you do them. And so it was, for the first 10 years, we had no gynecologist. I was female. I was a surgeon. It fell to me. And by then, I was so established in the community that it continued. So I did both general surgery and uh, OBGYN for all of my years in India. Uh, another thing that came uh, to me uh, unexpectedly, but it should have been logical if anyone had taught me, um, I began to have administrative responsibilities of all different kinds almost as soon as I arrived. Um, but I had been there 10 years when I became the CEO of the hospital. Uh, I had never been taught about um, financial management, human resource development, you know, all those neat things. I knew nothing. And with that and, and with the clinical areas as well, Whatever God asks you to do, he will equip you and enable you to do it. And I found it over and over again. 
whether he brought people, whether he brought uh, knowledge in some form, uh, God made it possible. And the scripture says that God is our competence. And we can be very assured of that. Um, I actually found out that I rather liked administration. Uh, you know, I had no clue before. And I, I at first worried that, you know, I was still seeing patients, but much less. And, and how could I tell those files about Jesus? I mean, they were files. And then I realized a whole new community had been opened to me that we didn't have access to before. There were all the, you know, the lawyers, the architects, the contractors, the business people, the, just what you have to deal with. And yet that was a community in our city that were very difficult to access. And now I was having to see them on a fairly regular basis. And, and so, you know, God is just so good in everything. Um, education, I was involved in teaching informally in the early years, and then we established the formal programs, um, residency training for doctors, allied health, the nursing school, chaplaincy training. And I was involved in accreditation procedures and uh, curriculum development for all those programs. most favorite thing I ever got to do was to teach in the nursing school. And I taught anatomy and, and uh, physiology and loved it. It was just fantastic. Um, hospitality. I already mentioned this. Uh, I invited people home for dinner. Uh, it was good, my good social life for me. And uh, then, um, you know, my first Christmas in India, I invited four ladies to tea. And I was, you know, quite proud that I could find four ladies to invite to tea. And uh, my last Christmas, I invited 250. And they were um, all kinds of people from all religious backgrounds. Um, and the only times that they, they got to know each other at my house at Christmas for the tea. Um, professional people, doctors, lawyers, architects, business uh, uh, our professional staff in the hospital, pastors. I mean, there were all these kinds of people, Muslim, Hindu, Christian, you name it. And it was a great opportunity uh, to be friends, but witness things happened. I remember one day a Hindu anesthesiologist looked at a little small nativity scene that I had, and he said, mm, could you tell me the story of that? I said, hmm, yeah, I could. I know that story. Um, so uh, another thing was music. If I had not been a doctor, I might have been a musician. But I figured when I went to India, it was just for me and it wasn't for anybody else. And so uh, that was not true either. Um, we organized a hospital choir, um, about 30 people from an orderly to a doctor. I mean, it was all kinds of people in this choir. Uh, none could read music. Uh, they sang in harmony. They sang in English. And we gave concerts all over the city regularly. Uh, this picture was, uh, we were filming a Christmas program for government television. And uh, many opportunities we had for witness and good PR uh, for the hospital. And in all the years that I was there, 
I was engaged in church planting, working with Indian pastors and evangelists. Um, so, uh, you know, lots, lots of opportunity through the hospital. So when we think about our identity as a follower of Jesus and our professional identity, the two should be totally integrated. You don't divide those identities in time or thought. But that's who you are. You're both. And so what did that look like for me? Well, I prayed with every patient before surgery, always with permission. I prayed in the name of Jesus. It was brief. Um, I led a Sunday service uh, for our patients. Uh, We used, um, most of you are too young to know about this, but flannel graph, figures on a felt board, telling Bible stories, um, and then presenting the gospel afterwards. And always we would say, if anyone is wanting to know more, please stay afterwards. And always somebody stayed. Always. Uh, opportunities to share my own story of faith with patients. It would happen in the clinic. It could happen in the ward. Um, and it may happen with non-bleeding staff as well. And then um, discipleship ministry, leading Bible studies, discipling younger professional staff in the hospital um, gave great opportunities. And then I've already mentioned uh, the church planting. What did I learn in all these years of doing this? Well, first of all, obedience to God's direction. And as you obey, God gives joy. Where you find joy in life is when you're obeying the Lord. Whatever that, wherever that takes you, whatever it is you're doing. Uh, obedience. Um, servant leadership. This is, we use this term kind of a lot and you think, oh yeah, well. Um, so when I think of a servant, you know, our main model in life is Jesus. And, and how you read in Philippians how Jesus came as a man and he took, he was a servant. And then you think of the story in John where he washed the disciples' feet. And when I put that on me, what I think is there is no job that I would not do. There's no job beneath me. If I need to swab the tables and floor in the OR between cases, I know how to do that. I can do that. Um, And so then leadership. What is leadership? Well, that's influence. It's not position, it's influence. And so you influence up and down and across. And so if you are a servant and you're doing any job, that inevitably is going to influence people. And to me, that is servant leadership. Um, Achieving excellence with limited resources. We must be excellent in what we do. That That is just, we must be. Otherwise, what we say is not credible. Your witness is not credible. Even what you tell a patient is not credible. Uh, you must do it with excellence. Um, I felt that way even about the maintenance of our hospital. Keeping it clean. If it's just a mess and it's obviously dirty, how can that make us very credible? Um Be a good steward of what you have, whether it's your resources, whether it's money, whether it's right now, some of you are students, your education, uh, your time, your energy, 
uh, your relationships. It is very important to invest in people. Uh, that takes time and energy, but it is so important. Even now, at, at whatever stage in life you are, um, invest in people. Listen to people. Relate to people. Be flexible. I talked about that before. I think I learned successful cross-cultural living. If we asked my Indian friends uh, whether I learned, uh, who knows what they might say, but I think I learned successfully. And perseverance in adversity. I haven't told you all the bad stories. There were. There are going to be. There will be adversities. Perseverance. What is it God wants for you? Um, and I, I learned about that. Well, the hospital today is just continuing to grow. You can tell by the different colors of plaster that it keeps getting added to. Uh, this is a new nursing dorm. It's going to be nine stories. We finished four. Uh, maybe the next two will come soon. Um, these numbers, um, actually, pre-COVID, they were a bit more. And I think this year they will be above pre-COVID. Uh, and so um, this, coupled with our community health work, they're reaching close to 400,000 patients a year. And if you remember that no one comes alone to the doctor, so there's the family and all, easily touching six to 700,000 people every year. And almost all of them are lost without Jesus. Uh, the hospital today, 400 beds, multi-specialty. It's tertiary care. They're doing renal transplants, liver transplants, bone marrow transplants, uh, you know, all, all of that. Um, the academics, we have courses in um, allied health and nursing, the postgraduate medical education, and the chaplaincy. And the spiritual outreach is still strong, and I praise God for this. And we're seeing 100 to 150 people every month want to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, we reach out to the community. Um, we have a peripheral center, which you actually see in the picture. We cover hundreds of villages. Primary care, health education, but there, there are the other things. Disability project, a senior citizens project. Uh, a cardiovascular uh, screening and treatment program, uh, an alcohol de-addiction program. Um, there are all these programs going on. Then we have the Urban Health Center, uh, a slum in the city of Bangalore. Uh, 100,000 people in that slum, a Muslim population, and they're seeing well over 1,000 patients a month. We have a mobile unit. We have palliative care, hospice uh, done in homes. We have five teams, uh, four rural, one urban, and uh, they're doing home visits. And then we take a breast cancer detection program to the community. Um, on my 70th birthday, somebody showed me this verse. Uh, Since my youth, God, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your marvelous deeds even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me, my God, till I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts, 
who, who, to all who are to come. And that is what I would declare to you today. God does mighty acts. And He is so powerful. And He is so faithful. Well, so what about you? I like to say that the healthcare professional is unique. Uh, my non-healthcare friends agree that we're probably very unique, but probably not in the way I think of. Um, we can cross every geographic barrier anywhere in the world, every cultural barrier, every economic barrier. The king gets sick. The illiterate villager gets sick. Uh, all of them. And most important, we can get to a spiritual conversation in minutes. And there's really nobody else that can do all these things. Nobody. And with privilege comes responsibility. Um, so next steps. Be sure your spiritual disciplines, your time with the Lord and His Word in prayer, your fellowship with other believers, be sure all of that is firmly in place. Learn about the world. Learn about what the needs are. Learn about what's going on. Learn about where God is working. Connect with a missionary mentor. This can be uh, good even if you're already a professional. Uh, A missionary who maybe is in the same profession that you are and be able to communicate. All that's possible now. Read missionary biographies. I I just think this is always fun and exciting and so instructive to see how God calls people, to see what they do, what God does with ordinary people, the kinds of ministries they have, what what all happened to them. Read missionary biographies. Share your faith now with others. Getting on an airplane does not make you start sharing your faith. So this should be something we as Christ followers are doing daily. Looking for those opportunities. There are people all around us in our student environment, in our workplaces. People who need to know the Lord. And if you think, well, I only deal with Christian people, as some of us in our jobs we do. Well, we need to go somewhere and find those who aren't. They're they're right there in our neighborhood, probably. Um, Look for cross-cultural opportunities now. The world has come here. And even in smaller towns, you'll find people of other cultures. The holiday season is coming. This is a great opportunity to invite them into your homes. Think about Thanksgiving and think about Christmas and what does it mean and, and wow, in our culture what is it and because of Jesus what is it um, prepare professionally obviously you need to be well prepared um, so in the missionaries I interviewed one said never set limits on God or be driven by your feelings and know that health care can be the most effective way of reaching hearts with the healing of the gospel I asked them the question, what gives you joy amidst everything else? And this is one answer. Seeing friends come to Christ, giving someone their first Bible, baptizing new believers, partnering with local church, and working together. These have been life verses for me uh, through all the years. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. 
and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Three things we're supposed to do. Trust. It's total trust with all your heart. We're not to try to figure things out on our own and acknowledge that he is God and he has promised his direction and he will keep every promise. So, this brings us to our opportunity for questions. Um, Any questions you'd like to ask? She's asking, what is something I wish that I had known when I started out? Um, You know, people ask me that, and I never quite know what to say. Uh, I'm sure it probably would have been helpful to know more things, but, you know, I think the, the bottom line is just being so sure of your call and your own faith in the Lord. Um, and to know that there will be challenges. And I think the other thing to know is that you go to that new place as a learner. You go not with all the answers. You go in humility. You go to ask questions and learn. Um, you will teach, yes, but they will teach you too. Um, yeah. Yes. I'm curious to know about the local people around you when you, when you say that the goal of the, of the hospital is church planting. How do the local people around you feel about you making believers? Um, she's asking about how the local people feel about the hospital goals of um, leading people to faith in Christ and starting churches. Um, first of all, they come for health care. And they get health care. They get it without any qualification. And they get excellent care. So that, that is the basis. There's uh, the gospel. The, the place is overtly Christian. There are Christian symbols. There's a cross. There, you know, that's there. Um, so far as the goal of planting churches, probably most folks don't even know what that is in that local setting. But uh, we share the gospel within the hospital uh, and in our follow-up work with patients. Um, the situation in India today uh, is one of growing persecution and restriction. The hospital is uh, also having to be more and more careful so far, they have been able to continue to witness. Um, they've had to make some changes. Like, for example, we used to have racks on the walls in all the rooms with tracks and maybe as a gospel or something. Those are gone now. And uh, the, uh, the chaplains, that, it was called the pastoral care department. It has been changed to the patient counseling department. And the ID badges don't say chaplain, they say counselor. They are doing exactly what they have done forever. But that changed. The Bibles, the tracts, the Gospels are all in the chapel. But the chaplain will not actually physically 
hand the person the Bible because that could be trouble. And so, uh, you know, we have Bibles right here. Would you like to have one? Uh, please take one. Um, so those kinds of things are happening because of the general persecution. But the, the hospital is so well respected and widely known and uh, trusted. They know that they're honest, they're ethical, they're not stealing, they're not corrupt, uh, there are no kickbacks happening, uh, all that, and that's rare. And so that in itself generates huge goodwill in the commu- Even the government knows that. How much of the staff are believers? It would be a minority, unfortunately, now. Uh, As the hospital has grown, um, there are just not that many Christians to hire in a 400-bed hospital. I mean, there are almost 600 nurses in the hospital. I think probably in nursing, the majority are still Christian. Medical staff, they're not because of the residents. The residents are assigned to the hospital by the government. We can't even choose now to choose Christian residents. Um, So, you know, uh, that is how it is. Um, But there are many believers in the hospital. There are 1,600 employees. And every week, at least 500 are able to worship together in staff chapels. Uh, they just had staff retreat, and even with the shifts and the work schedules, over 500 came. So it's still it's still there, but you know, as it gets bigger, that gets more challenging. Another question? Yes. Um, when, you, when you first went over as a surgeon, um, what were the expected or unexpected responses of your The missionary team, yeah, they, that was really almost my, my first term. That was the bigger challenge. Um, actually, there was a surgeon there, a missionary, uh, who had built the hospital and older than I and I'm very so respected him, of course. But uh, he, he had a little issue with a, a woman surgeon. I don't know that he was even conscious of it. But I was aware. And one of the things that he would do was, uh, uh, it didn't happen but once or twice, he would come along and change my orders on the chart without talking to me. And I would discover it when I next came to see the patient. Well, you know, that, that isn't done anywhere. Uh, so this was one of those times that you're assertive. You know, and I just said we, we need to come to some understanding. And we did. Um, so, you know, they, they had to figure it out. But, um, you know, those relationships developed into strong friendships. From patient community, even though, you know, it's uh, women are don't have a very positive place in the culture in India, uh, because I was a foreigner and because I was a doctor, 
I didn't really encounter any difficulty. Um, and, uh, and the patience, again, you earn respect of people. You have to earn it. You don't just, that's not a gift. Uh, and their trust you have to earn, and, and I did that. And so I really didn't have any pushback from patients. Um, they were just grateful. Yes? Especially in relationship to the question asked about what you wish you had known before on the field. I think one thing I wish I had known before I went was there's, they say the number one, and it, it might be debatable, but not one, but certainly number two reason that missionary, for attrition, why missionaries leave the field is difficulty with co workers. And um, I just think that's huge to be prepared for that. And I think. What I heard you say, what I see demonstrated in your life, is um, a learner's heart. The greatest gift <coughs> you can have to, to guarantee our success is a learner's heart. A learner's heart is a humble heart. And if you have a learner's heart, no matter how many mistakes you made, you're going to get it. And people understand that humility that's there. So I think that's a great gift to teach with people. Yeah, don't be disillusioned because of those... those um interpersonal issues that, that come in your team. Um, that happened to me in my first term. Uh, fortunately, uh, after, after all I'd been through in residency, I was uh, kind of, you know, I just dealt with it. Uh, and also, I had been, I'd served overseas in a mission hospital as a medical student and had uh, then seen, not, I wasn't involved, but I observed some some issues, so I, I wasn't disillusioned when it happened in my own experience. It's uh, 3:29, and I thank you so much for your attention. Uh, our IMB does have a booth uh, downstairs in the main exhibit hall, and I'm there at least most of the time, or they know where I am, and uh, it. If you have questions, please come and talk.